Nearly 20 years after September 11, 2001, there are still questions about how victims of the attacks and their families will be compensated and how much they're eligible for. Congress set up two special funds that have paid out tens of billions of dollars to victims so far, but lawmakers are still considering changes to the eligibility criteria. Last year, lawmakers told the Government Accountability Office to estimate how much those changes would cost, and those calculations are now in. To help explain the complicated landscape of 9-11 victims' compensation, we talked with Triana McNeil. She is a Director of Homeland Security and Justice Issues at GAO. There are two funds for 9-11 victims uh, compensation. The first is the Victim Compensation Fund. This was established uh, in 2001 after 9-11, and the law that established it is the Air Transportation System Safety and Stabilization Act. And this fund um, is, is funded through the federal appropriations, um, and it's been extended till 2092, so it will continue to get get funding as appropriations are made. And eligible persons here include persons that were physically harmed or killed as a result of terrorist-related aircraft crashes on September 11th, or they were involved in the debris removal that took place immediately after the crashes, or their spouses and dependents of those victims. Mm -hmm. So that's the first fund. The second fund is the U.S. Victims of State-Sponsored Terrorism Fund, and that's what our work focused on. This fund was established by the Terrorism Act in 2015, and it was amended in 2019 by the Clarification Act. So in 2015, only immediate family members, that's parents, and non-dependent siblings of 9-11 victims could get money through this fund. Uh, In 2019, the Clarification Act made 9-11 victims, spouses, and dependents who were previously precluded, they could now get money from this fund. So um, unlike the Victim Compensation Fund that's funded through federal appropriations, This one, eligible persons need to have a judgment, a decree, or an order on liability and damages from a federal district court against a designated state sponsor of terrorism. And so victims and immediate family members from 9-11, as well as other acts of state-sponsored terrorism can get money from this fund. It's not just a 9-11 victim fund. For example, um, family members and and Iran hostages um, can get money from this fund. I hope that helps. No, it it does help. So in that that latter case, you would really be suing the government of Iran, but since the government of Iran is essentially judgment-proof, that's the purpose of the fund, is to compensate you. Uh, that That is right. And so um, claim amounts and payments are not always the same because the fund only makes payments to claimants with money that the fund has allocated. So the, the fund is based on money paid by state sponsors of terrorism. And, and of course, this is still in process. All money has not been collected. Um, some money may not ever be recouped. 
Okay, and and to further complicate that that distinction between victim spouses and dependents and family members, I think one of the things GAO was asked to do here was determine the amount of catch-up payments for for one of those two groups. Can you describe what those catch-up payments are and and how you went about figuring out what the total amount would be? Sure. So we were asked to do two things. Um, estimate the lump sum catch-up payments to eligible 9-11 victims, spouses, and dependents that would result in the percentage of claims received from the fund being equal to the percentage of claims of 9-11 family members. And and Congress stipulated those two things needed to be equal, right? That is is correct. Um, They asked us to estimate what that would be to make them equal. Um, The act does not contain a provision to make the catch-up payments. It just asked GAO to to estimate what the catch-up payment would be. And so the the second thing that GAO was asked to do was estimate the lump sum catch-up payment by group. So what would the victims' estates get? What would the spouses get? And what would the dependents get? And so what, what we did, we estimated that um, there was 5,364 9-11 victims, spouses, and dependents that had applied for uh, money from the fund in rounds one, two, and three. And we worked to make sure that the proportion of the payments provided to um the 9-11 family members, which is the siblings and parents that had been paid, would be the same for those victims, spouses, and dependents. And what we found, um, that the 9-11 family members received about $1.2 billion of their $19.7 billion in net eligible claims. So they got about 6% in those first two rounds from the fund. And so we use that 6% to estimate what the catch-up payment would be for the previously precluded victim spouses and dependents. And again, there was 5,364 of them based on our read of the data. And so we found that their catch-up payment as in total would be about $2.7 billion. Got it. Oh, so, so I, I guess one of my fundamental questions here is, okay, now that we're 20 years on from 9-11, this last bit of work that you did for Congress to figure out what the payments would be subject to appropriations, have most of the questions been answered at this point about exactly how we're going to compensate victims or are there still computations out there that need to be done by, by GAO or someone else? Do we, do we feel like we have a solid scheme in place that answers all of the questions that are posed by the current statutory schemes for for compensating victims? So we provided these estimates for Congress so they can consider what's appropriate for catch-up payments. They can follow um, the work that we did and implement that or something close to that, or they can do something very different. Um, that's, That's definitely up to them. But I think the work that we did provides a good roadmap 
And again, these are rough estimates because individual payments will will vary based on statutory caps and other compensation that in, that individuals have received from like life insurance and pensions. Um, but I do think that this is a very good roadmap for the Congress to consider if they decide to provide catch-up payments to the victims and the spouses and the dependents. Right. And so Congress's question for you was basically, if we did catch-up payments in this way, making them equal in the way that you talked about, what would that look like, GAO? And now you've answered that question. That is correct. We have answered that question. Triana McNeil is a director of Homeland Security and Justice Issues at the Government Accountability Office. We'll post a link to the GAO analysis we've been talking about at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I am your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Vice Admiral Cutler Dawson. Cutler has had an incredible career serving our country for 35 years in the Navy, where he attained the rank of Vice Admiral. During his service, he had numerous assignments afloat and ashore, including Commander, Second Fleet, Striking Fleet Atlantic, and in Washington at the Pentagon and on Capitol Hill, where he was the Navy's Chief of Legislative Affairs. Immediately following his retirement from active duty in 2004, he became the President and CEO of Navy Federal Credit Union, the world's largest credit union, where he served for 14 years. Under his leadership, Navy Federal grew from 2 million to 8 million members. Phenomenal. Cutler, welcome and thanks for joining me. Thank you, Shane. You've had a fascinating career across both military and the private sector. Can you tell us a little bit more about your background and your professional journey? Well, I started out at the Naval Academy where I graduated in 1970. And then, as you mentioned, spent 35 years in the Navy um, with uh, six actual actual, uh, afloat commands. Uh, The first one was when I was 27 years old. Uh, I didn't know enough to be scared of anything. And it was uh, probably one of the highlights of my career. Um, and then after I retired, after 35 years, I went to uh, work at Navy Federal Credit Union as the CEO, where I spent my next 14 years. Um, I'm, I'm currently retired and enjoying life. And um, it's been a great run for me. How would you describe your leadership style? And how's that developed over the years? My style has been quite con- consistent. Um, I believe, and I've learned this in the Navy, that you have to go to the deck plates uh, to see what is going on. And you have to learn what your people do and how they do it so you can help them to be better at it and more efficient and more productive. Um, it's um, something that you need to do all the time. Um, I remember I used to tell folks that um, you don't want to retreat to your cabin what I mean by that is um, the longer you're in a position, the less you think you have to get out and about. But that should be the opposite. You should get out and about more because people change, situations change, and you've got to figure out a way to get to them and find out what they're doing and where, what you can do to help them. Uh, I. We'll talk a little bit more about your book, but I read it um, from C to the C-suite. Fantastic read. You talk about the deck plates in that um, as well. I would encourage everyone to get a copy of this and read some more detail about going to the deck plates. Cutler, who was the most impactful leader in your life and what quality did you admire about them 
I had numerous while I was in the Navy, but uh, the quality that, that I enjoyed the most was the leaders that got to know me as an individual and that they cared about me. And I could tell that they cared about me. And they were not only my leaders, but they were my mentors. And um, I remember um, one particular one, Bill Schiffer, when I had my first assignment at the Pentagon, um, I would go in to see him with my problem of the day. And I knew that he had numerous problems of his own, but he would stop and he would focus on me and he would make me feel like I was the most important person in his world. Um, and I, I tried to do that um, throughout my career, but really it's about caring for your people. Cutler, in reading your book, there was a quote you used that you used to inspire those people that work for you. And it really got my attention. And it was, it was you are the captain of your own ship. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about what that means and how it was useful to you and the leaders you were developing. Uh, absolutely. Um, what I mean by captain of your own ship, when you are the captain of a ship, sometimes you're in the middle of the ocean and you don't have anybody to turn to to make decisions. You don't have anybody to turn to ask, what should I do now? You have to be the captain of that ship. And I, I translated that um, into, let's say, Navy Federal's organization, where I would tell branch managers that I said, you are the captain of the ships of Navy Federal. You're the ones that are facing the, the members or customers, as others call them, every day. And you have to make decisions without a lot of guidance, in some cases, and without a lot of time. So be the captain of your own ship. Step up, uh, make decisions, uh, do what you think is right, and you never can go wrong. I think that is so important. And you have to give your people a little bit of latitude to take some risk as well, because there is risk for them in doing that and risk to your organization. That's right. And, and I mentioned that I took command of my first ship uh, with five years in the Navy and I was 27 years old. Well, my boss had 32 years in the Navy and um, his, his guidance to me when I first met him was, Cutler, you do the right thing and I'll back you up all the way. What a wonderful way to, to spend an assignment with, uh, with backup and, and guidance like that. What, what great, great advice. Uh, it's clear leadership is a topic you're passionate about. You wrote the book we mentioned before, um, From C to C-Suite. Can you tell us a little bit about that project? Yes, when I was at Navy Federal, I would tell sea stories. Uh, as parables to get my point across. And um, folks would tell me, Cutler, we like your stories. It gives us a picture of what you're trying to tell us. Now, what else are they going to say? They work for me, but uh, uh, I took it as a compliment, and it was. And my wife encouraged me to write a book, and I needed a co-author to help me. And I found a lady named Taylor Keelan, who was the perfect, perfect co-author. She turned in my stories into wonderful chapters um, that I'm very proud of. Where can listeners find a copy? Well, you can get it on Amazon uh, and you can also uh, get it on the Naval Institute website. Uh, and I might add that um, any proceeds from the book, Navy Federal uses uh, to give to charity. Fantastic. Cutler, thank you very much. Really enjoyed your time and your lessons in, in leadership and sharing with us your life story. And, and uh, I've learned a lot both from 
talking to you today and reading your book. And thank you very much for your time. It's my pleasure. And I, I, I would like to add one thing, if I could, Shane. Um, during my assignments in Washington, D.C., I gained the utmost respect for the civilians that work here every day. They're hardworking, they're dedicated, and they, they have my eternal gratitude. Uh, I got to come and go from the Pentagon. They stayed every day and worked in Washington when I got to go out and um, enjoy being at sea. Perfect, thank you. Yeah, we, WEPA serves civilian federal employees, but your comment is well taken because the interaction between the two is, is continuous, it's nonstop and it's critical. So uh, the career civil servants, as well as career military, uh, our country would not be where it is today without them. I totally agree. And, and I can tell you from the US Navy standpoint, uh, we couldn't operate like we do without them being the backbone of what we do. Thank you very much for your time today, Cutler. And to everyone listening to Lessons in Leadership podcast, we'll see you next time. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you are sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.